Hi, Habibis. I just wanted to let you all know that Habibti Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is very important to me and others as a group of progressive voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives told in right-wing and liberal media. I want to recommend some shows I personally enjoy that are part of the Harbinger Media Network, such as Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahal, as well as the Indigenous storytelling series Feel Rouge, which features stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger is listener supported. You can get subscriber specific content when you head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe. Jerusalem today. Palestinians are being told the same thing as black folks in America. There is no acceptable form of resistance. We are bearing witness to egregious human rights violations. The pain, trauma, and terror that Palestinians are facing is not just the result of this week's escalation, but the consequence of years of military occupation. In Sheikh Jarrah, the Israeli government is violently dispossessing yet another neighborhood of Palestinian families from homes they have lived in for decades. We cannot stand idly and complicitly by and allow the occupation and oppression of the Palestinian people to continue. We cannot remain silent when our government sends 3.8 billion of military aid to Israel that is used to demolish Palestinian homes, imprison Palestinian children, and displace Palestinian families. A budget is a reflection of our values I'm committed to ensuring that our government does not fund state violence in any form, anywhere. Many say the conditioning aid is not a phrase that I should utter here, but let me be clear. No matter the context, American government dollars always come with conditions. The question at hand is should our taxpayer dollars create conditions for justice, healing, and repair? Or should those dollars create conditions for oppression and apartheid? Now, while I hold space, do space for the storied history and unique lived experiences on the ground globally, there is a through line here. And whether we are talking about the militarization of our communities or weapons of war, the question is the same. If our budgets are a statement of our values, what do we value? Whose lives do we value? We have seen footage of Israeli and Palestinian children huddled fearfully while rockets blanket their homeland. No child should live in fear. No child should grow up in the midst of a conflict that robs them of a childhood. And Palestinian children do not have the same protections afforded to them. Without the U.S. exerting pressure on Israel to de-escalate, the explosive situation in Jerusalem is igniting further violence, not just in the city, but beyond. It is clear there is a grave asymmetry of power here. Palestinians do not have a sovereign state and the protections that come with it. There is a crushing dehumanization to how we talk about this terrible violence. The New York Post reported the Palestinian death toll as Israeli casualties. ABC says that Israelis are, quote, killed, while Palestinians simply, quote, die, as if by magic, as if they were never human to begin with. Help me understand the math. How many Palestinians have to die for their lives to matter? Life under apartheid strips Palestinians of their human dignity. How would you feel if you had to go through dehumanizing checkpoints two blocks from your own home to go to the doctor or travel across your own land? How would you feel if you had to do it while pregnant in the scorching heat as soldiers with guns controlled your freedom? How would you feel it if you lived in Gaza where your power and water might be out for days or weeks at a time? Where you cut were cut off from your, the outside world by inhumane military blockade. Meanwhile, Palestinians' rights to nonviolent resistance have been curtailed and even criminalized. 
Our party leaders have spoken forcefully against BDS, calling its proponents anti-Semitic, despite the same tactics being critically critical to ending the South African apartheid mere decades ago. What we are telling Palestinians fighting apartheid is the same thing being told to my black neighbors and Americans throughout that are fighting against police brutality here. There is no form of acceptable resistance to state violence. As long as the message from Washington is that our military support for Israel is unconditional, Netanyahu's extremism right-wing government will continue to expand settlements, continue to demolish homes, and continue to make the prospects for peace impossible. 330 of my own colleagues and Democrats and Republicans here, 75% of the body here, signed a letter pledging that Israel shall never be made, made to comply with basic human rights laws that other countries that receive our military aid must observe. You know, when I see the images and videos of destruction and death in Palestine, all I hear are the children screaming from pure fear and terror. I want to read something a mother named Iman in Gaza wrote two days ago. She said, quote, tonight I put the kids to sleep in our bedroom so that when we die, we die together and no one would live to mourn the loss of another one. The statement broke me a little more because of my country's policies and funding will deny this mother's right to see children live, her own children live without fear and to grow old without painful trauma and violence. We must condition aid to Israel on compliance with international human rights and end the apartheid. We must, with no hesitation, demand that our country recognize the unconditional support of Israel has enabled the erasure of Palestinian life and the denial of the rights of millions of refugees and emboldens the apartheid policies that Human Rights Watch has detailed thoroughly in their recent report. I stand before you not only as a congresswoman for the beautiful 13 District Strong, but also as a proud daughter of Palestinian immigrants and the granddaughter of a loving Palestinian grandmother living in the occupied Philistine. You take that and you combine it with the fact that I was raised in one of the most beautiful, blackest cities in America, a city where movements for civil rights and social justice are birthed, the city of Detroit. So I can't stand here I can't stand silent when injustice exists, where the truth is obscured. If there's one thing Detroit instilled in this Palestinian girl from Southwest, it's you always speak truth to power even if your voice shakes. The freedom of Palestinians is connected to the fight against oppression all over the world. Lastly, to my city in Palestine, Ashanik, on a whack of Hannah, I stand here because of you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. What you just heard was Rashida Tlaib making a strong plea in U.S. Congress for why we need action. She wasn't alone in a strong statement this week about the military aid that's sent to Israel. Anna Presley said, We cannot remain silent when our government sends $3.8 billion of military aid to Israel that is used to demolish Palestinian homes, imprison Palestinian children, and displace Palestinian families. A budget is a reflection of our values. Thing is, America is not alone in sending military aid to Israel. 
our money as Canadians and our tax dollars and our purchases also dispossess and violently harm Palestinians. And so this week, Ryan and I wanted to sit down with Palestinian Youth Movement, as well as the people behind the NDP Palestine Resolution, to, to discuss what, as Canadians, or people living in what is known as Canada, we could do to push back and be in solidarity with Palestinian people. I hope this episode informs people on how to take some action that goes beyond posting. Hi everyone. This week we're going to be doing an episode on Palestine and with us today, with Ryan and I today, are Rowan N. and Mohammed W. from Palestinian Youth Movement Toronto and we are so happy to have them with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. We're really excited to learn all about PYM and the work that you do. So yeah, please introduce yourselves, your organization and tell our listeners about it. Sure. Um, So my name is Mohammed W. and just to give a little bit information about PYM. We are a transnational, independent, grassroots movement of young Palestinians uh, dedicated to the liberation of our homeland and people. We are a grassroots organization. I just want to put two red lines under that. And yes, we are, uh, me and Rowan represent the Toronto chapter, uh, which is the first chapter uh, in Canada. um, We're happy to be here. So it started, I believe, in 2006. And so it came out of a uh, coalition, or not a coalition, but another organization um, that was called the Palestinian Youth Network. And so that essentially started in Europe, and then it kind of moved its way um, across to the Middle East, and then kind of went towards um, the United States. And so the United States has been doing a lot of work. Um, I think they've been doing work for about 10 years now, 10 plus years on particularly under the name Palestinian Youth Movement. And so Bay Area Chapter, for example, has done a lot of grassroots work and they've connected with indigenous groups, black groups in Oakland, for instance. Um, Then you have the NYC chapter. There's other chapters in Houston, Dallas. And I believe that there are some folks who are independent organizers and they're based in like Florida, for instance, or based in New Hampshire. And so there's a lot of folks who are kind of chapterless, but they're still nonetheless doing work um, within the organization itself. So can you tell us about what PYM has been up to lately and especially in the current context of what's been happening in Sheikh Jarrah? For sure. So right now we're doing a rally and a projector action at Nathan Phillips Square at 7 p.m. And right now our calls to action, our demands are to essentially the same kinds of things that we've been talking about for years and years as Palestinians, but particularly, of course, in the PYM, which is to and apartheid and the occupation but right now there is ongoing Nakba and what that means is that there there are ongoing evictions or ongoing colonial violence that is happening in Sheikh Jarrah particularly but not just in Sheikh Jarrah but all over Jerusalem and different parts of occupied Palestine and right now in fact they are also bombing and attacking Gaza which is really important to consider because that's kind of how Israel puts a chokehold on Palestine in general, right? So uh, just for context, also, the action is on Saturday, May 15th at 7 p.m. at Nathan Phillips Square. In essence, we we wanted to have an action where people from the Palestinian community in the GTA area would be able to, you know, come out and express their outrage at what's happening in Jerusalem and different parts of Palestine. Uh, specifically, you know, dynamic in Sheikh Jarrah and how it kind of coincides with the 73rd anniversary of the Nakba, which is the catastrophe that Palestinians suffered in 1948, which is kind of saw the uh, creation of the State of Israel. And the idea 
idea was to have an action where the community can come and express their outrage while also maintaining, you know, safety protocols and making sure that everyone stays safe and social distance. So like like Rowan said, um, it's going to be a rally and a protest, but it's also going to be a projector action where we're going to be having certain political imagery and messaging that's going to be projected uh, on different walls of uh, Nathan Phillips Square just to kind of raise awareness about what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, what's happening in Jerusalem, and also tying that with the Nakba because we see what's happening right now uh, as a continuation of the Nakba. And just to add a little bit of more context, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, as many of our listeners might know, is framed as evictions. But in reality, it's a continuation of a settler colonial project that started in 1948. And so that's kind of why we see it as a Nakba, because it was the beginning of Palestinian suffering, exile, and oppression. Yeah, and I think another important part that a lot of folks have been talking about is that every neighborhood in Palestine that's occupied was once Sheikh Jarrah, right? And that's an important point to keep in mind that this is, and that's why we say it's ongoing Nakba, right? And and to you know add to Mo's point that this is this is constantly happening, and this is sometimes it's it's done under the rug, you know. And you know what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah is very much, I would say, it's it's surprising to find that it's amplified, you know, and it's 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 encouraging, but it's also like where was all this outrage and where was all this, I guess, media kind of coverage when other places and other neighborhoods in Jerusalem were also going through the same thing, you know? And so just keeping in mind that it's Sheikh Jarrah, but also it's every neighborhood in Jerusalem. It's every neighborhood in Palestine. And yeah, just like Mo said, ongoing settler colonialism, ongoing apartheid and colonial violence that is happening in all other places of Palestine. Well, the language of evictions is quite interesting, and I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. I think on one hand, that almost creates a parallel for people here to, I guess, consider, but that language also doesn't really grasp the gravity of what's happening there and how um, an eviction, like, when we think of an eviction here, Nashwa and I have, have talked to tenant organizers before, and, you know, we think of landlord-tenant board hearings and, like, and, you know, like, things like that, which just doesn't really paint the same picture as to what's happening um, in Palestine. And so I think it's important, the language helps to understand what's happening good, but at the same time, really understand the differences and the gravity. Well, I think that I think that raises a good point. Like evictions are grotesque here, but the, there is like a, a process, right? And it's not fair, but in, in Palestine, the, the unfairness is it's jarring, right? So there's, there's a legal system that only settlers are entitled to when it comes to paperwork. And I'm wondering if either of you could expand on that a bit for an audience who may not understand that because they may think that this is a the paperwork issue and that's not what this is. Fortunately, I'm not as versed with the legal process as many people in Palestine and East Jerusalem might be. However, to put it kind of in a basic way, the courts that are established in Israel are colonial courts and that will always prioritize the needs, interests, and views of the uh, Israeli citizens and of the settler colonial movement, uh, broadly speaking. And so that's just kind of important to know going into, you know, just kind of learning about the process because, yes, as you said, it's not a, an issue of paperwork because what, what basically what happens here is that settler organizations provide, you know, documents to the courts saying that, you know, prior to these people living in these homes, these homes all belong to settlers, Jewish settlers from around the world. 
and then the courts kind of just take that you know at face value without a grain of salt and then when the residents of Sheikh Jarrah or any other any other Palestinians facing expulsion from their homes present papers to the courts they're dismissed and they're not even looked at and this is just kind of another manifestation of the apartheid system that people in Palestine live under exactly what Mo said in terms of Israel is Israeli Supreme Courts or Israeli courts in general being colonial courts so even thinking about it in terms of evictions kind of legitimizes the Israeli courts and so just for context also Israeli laws are completely completely exclude Palestinians and so this is why we call it an apartheid system and so just for context um, in 1970 the Israeli Supreme Court actually asserted that under Israeli basic law uh, the state of Israel is for Jewish people and non-Jewish citizens don't possess the same civil liberties as uh, Jewish folks and so a lot of the times you hear like Benjamin Netanyahu who is the Prime Minister of Israel saying you know things like this is the state for Jewish folks only and non this is not a state for non-Jews and so you have this kind of rhetoric being reproduced and recreated in different ways and so for example you have politicians saying exactly those same things and so once you think about that in the framework of how we think about colonial violence that paperwork doesn't even matter to them you know that paperwork of of you know our ancestors or our grandfathers have legal rights to these lands legal rights to these homes we have our keys we have our keys to our homes none of that really matters to them because it's been established that you know this is an apartheid system and so anything that we come with is not legitimized to them. And so, again, saying it, framing things as evictions is really a way for, for it to sound like it's almost like, again, like I said, legitimizing it. But it almost sounds like more of a human rights approach rather than a settler colonial project. I think it's also worth noting that um, it's, it's, it's also different than the way we understand evictions, because, you know, usually evictions in most countries kind of just get settled in tri tribunals and courts, and then, you know, the, the matter ends there. Uh, but fortunately, people in Palestine don't have that liberty, because the state colludes with, and the state and the courts, colludes with settler organizations, with the police, with the IDF, army. And so it, it, it's very arbitrary sometimes. It seems like, you know, while it is presented as an issue of, you know, conflicting paperwork, in reality, it, it's always going to be one-sided. And, you know, the police violence is always going to go one way. And the, the settler violence will always go one way as well. So it's important to keep in mind that this isn't an issue that could be resolved in the courts even. And the courts are not even acting in good faith to begin with. So that's why it's, it's very important to view things the correct context uh, and refrain from using um, the language of, you know, evictions and so forth. And when these families lose their homes, many of them end up being refugees. And we see this with so many Palestinians in exile. And, and the keys were, is such an important point. Like, what, what does any of this really mean? But um, something that's often overlooked about the population of Gaza is that 70% of that population are refugees. People think, uh, I, I think people in the West, I'll say people in the West uh, who are not uh, Palestinian or who have not read on this, don't realize that Gaza is actually 70% um, refugees. And right now it's having warplanes fly over and just demolishing people's homes and killing people, including children. And UNICEF has even recognized this. And UNICEF usually does not recognize in the language that they're currently recognizing what's going on. And so I'm wondering if either of you or both of you could discuss about this, this forced displacement 
and multiple displacement, but also this this type of like open air prison as Angela Davis has described it and what are investments as people who are in the Imperial Corps and have tax money that goes into those warplanes um, is causing right now. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a really important point. Um, so it is actually the same thing that you brought up about Gaza, about, you know, a lot of people being there being people that were already displaced applies to Sheikh Jarrah as well. Um, most of the residents of Sheikh Jarrah are living there because they were displaced from other parts of Palestine. And they were, you know, granted uh, residence there because of, you know, a deal that happened between uh, Jordan and Israel. And so this is not their first time being displaced. And for many, many families, this is their third and fourth time being displaced. And it's really important to note here that once you're displaced from your home in Sheikh Jarrah, it's not as easy as, you know, just finding another place in that same neighborhood because there's also discriminatory discriminatory policies that act as a barrier for Palestinians to be able to find another home in, in the area. So for a lot of these, and most of these people living in Sheikh Jarrah, once they're out of the area, they're out. They're out. Their historical ties to the land is severed, and then, you know, that's, that's that. In terms of... In terms of, you know, uh, what's happening in Gaza, obviously, it's very, very horrific. Especially, like you said, most of the people living there were also displaced from other parts of Palestine and, you know, do not have, you know, means. They were they had to let go of most of their property, their wealth, their land. And so this kind of reproduces an issue, which is that the, the fact that there's a blockade on Gaza is horrific in and of itself. But the fact that these people are kind of just viewed as inhabitants of Gaza without even acknowledging that they had a history in other parts of Palestine is an erasure of our history. And it's, it's, it's deliberately done that so that we kind of neglect the fact that this is an ongoing process of ethnic cleansing for most of Palestine. Yeah, and I think to touch on Gaza a little bit more, I mean, a lot of the times the deaths and the murders and the ongoing violence in Gaza is extremely normalized. And you see children being murdered and it's, it's, there's always this rhetoric of both sides that comes up, especially with Gaza. And it's really terrifying to see because then you have this kind of separation where you have Palestine or the West Bank particularly and then Gaza, where it's like, this is normal in Gaza, this is not normal in other parts of Palestine. And I think to really emphasize like the blockade on Gaza is a really critical point for Israel to maintain settler colonial violence because the ways that they punish all Palestinians is by punishing Gaza and for them it's like how do we maintain this how do we put a chokehold on the rest of Palestine and how do we stop for example um, protests from happening how do we stop uprisings from erupting how do we stop intifadas which are um, political uprisings from happening and it's to bomb the crap out of Gaza essentially and so it's a really important note to also exactly what you said. I mean, Gaza not only is an open air prison, but also the fact that it's extremely overpopulated. And I mean, when you're thinking about this with the context of COVID-19 as well, there's no place to social distance. There's no place to put on masks. There's no, there's no supplies. There's nothing there that can potentially get folks to be safe in any kind of constructive way. And so for Israel, that's exactly the kinds of maintenance of um, settler colonialism and apartheid. Okay, so can you tell us a bit about what Canada's role has been in um, providing legitimacy to, or at the very least complacency for um, Israel's crimes and actions in Palestine? And also, what does that mean in the context of a global pandemic and vaccine inequity, given that, you know, in Ontario, we're all very happy that, that many people are getting vaccines now, but 
that's not the case um, in Palestine and in much of the global south. Canada actually plays a pretty important role in kind of maintaining this impunity surrounding Israel. And it does it in multiple fronts. The first thing to know is that Canada does, even though Israel is one of the biggest military arms manufacturers in the world, Canada actually exports around $13 million in military goods. And that's just in 2019 uh, to Israel. Beyond that, beyond like the military assistance, um, Canada does have a free trade agreement with Israel, SIFTA. And unfortunately, it's it's kind of, it's kind of, kind of harrowing to speak about. However, um, I'm not sure if uh, folks remember, but um, in 2018, during the Great March of Return, there was a Canadian doctor uh, named Tariq Lubani, who was um, on a mission in Gaza to provide, you know, assistance, medical assistance to people. And he was shot by an Israeli sniper. And when this kind of created outrage within Canada to, you know, f- to a push for Canada to hold Israel accountable for shooting one of its own citizens, for, you know, peacefully protesting uh, and, and helping with peaceful pre- protesters, um, you know, Justin Trudeau came out and said, yeah, we'll have an independent review, this, this, and that. And then three weeks later, nothing happened, and they actually increased the trade that they had with Israel, and they signed and re-ratified mm-hmm. the free, free trade agreement with Israel, and kind of just swept the whole issue of Tariq Lubani under the rug. Additionally, uh, Canada actually plays a really big role in the UN as well. Pretty much any vote that condemns Israel for its actions, Canada votes down, along with the US, and always kind of stands by the US, their buddies, no matter what, uh, no matter what Israel does. Um, they at most they would use the language of condemnation of you know Israeli settlements and they want to pursue a two two state solution. However, when actual issues of Israeli violations of human human rights, Israeli violations of international humanitarian law, Canada always sticks by the side of Israel and denies any accountability for Israel. The one last thing that Canada also does is. It also provides immunity to Israel domestically. So whenever there are uh, valid criticisms of Israel being made, whenever, for example, um, you know there are, there's a call for BDS for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel, Canada always has always had a firm. Uh, stance in opposition to BDS and opposition to any form of accountability to Israel. There's been work for years and decades from so many um, indigenous activists and decolonial activists here making these connections. And we know of the deadly exchange, which we're going to talk about in the second half of this episode with a few folks. Um, and that's the exchange of tactics um, with that settler nations use against indigenous people. And we see here that the Turtle Island to Palestine or the Six Nations to Palestine uh, movements and what people are bringing up. And I, I guess like something I would want to talk about too if we have the chance right now or either of you could elaborate on is how um, settler nations also don't distribute resources equally to indigenous populations and how um, a lot of this violence is possible because the settler population was fully vaccinated and that's when we see violence escalated whereas the indigenous uh, Palestinian population did not receive the same healthcare treatment and that's a regular thing. There's Palestinian women who have to leave a week before giving birth or two weeks before giving birth to seek medical aid. People are stopped at checkpoints in medical emergency situations and die at uh, checkpoints. And so here with Indigenous people, we see in uh, with Land Back Lane and the Wet'suwet'en people that resources are not evenly distributed. We see it with the clean water right now. The Trudeau government just broke their promise. So that's a resource that's been promised and it's a treaty right. And the Canadian government has an obligation to give First Nations 
nation's clean water. That was a promise made by this this colonial government that has not been fulfilled and I don't believe will be fulfilled. A lot of activists had to push for uh, Indigenous people to be prioritized in vaccinations here. And if that push didn't happen, I don't think that would have been something that happened. And we're very lucky here that that did work out, but it's still not like feasible in like none of it. The vaccine rollout, now they have cases of COVID and they don't have a fully vaccinated population either. Whereas there's people in Rosedale and Toronto who are fully vaccinated somehow and they face COVID at a lower rate than much of the population here. So if we could also make that kind of medical connection to like, it's a different way of killing people, right? Through like withholding resources and medical aid or just basic, I don't know, resources. For sure. I think that was a really important context in terms of it's literally killing people in different ways and it's literally murder in different ways. And so that point that you brought up in terms of withholding resources, I mean, that's that's essentially what's happening. And I think to, to go as far as saying what's happening in Canada is apartheid, I would say. I mean, reserves are a big portion of how we understand apartheid and how we understand apartheid systems and how we understand how colonial laws work. And so the same kind of tactics, like you said, are being used here that are also being used in Palestine. So in Palestine, for instance, Israel is not allowing any vaccines to go through whatsoever, while almost over half, I believe now, I think maybe 60 or 70 percent of their population right now is being vaccinated. And you can see them. They're fully vaccinated, first of all. And second of all, they're going out in the streets and basically rubbing it into Palestinians' faces, being like, we are vaccinated, we're able to do whatever we want to do. And they come into the streets of Sheikh Jarrah, for example, completely armed, without masks, you know, and also that puts Palestinians at risk, not only because of COVID, but also because they're armed, right? And just in terms of the vaccine situation, so as as we were talking about, currently Israel is quote-unquote leading Um, in world vaccine rollouts and they vaccinated again like i said over half their population around 5.3 million people and so you have 3 million palestinians in the west bank and 2 million palestinians in gaza without any access to vaccines and as i said as i mentioned previously this is definitely medical apartheid that's how we've been describing it for years and years now and we've been describing as apartheid generally but this um with the onset of vaccines it's medical apartheid And obviously you have one group who's getting the privilege of being vaccinated while others suffer under the weight of disease. And this also makes doctors have to make decisions about who gets to live and who gets to die. And all these decisions are made basically under Israeli military rule that controls movements, that controls any permissions that Palestinians require. And for instance, they control how Palestinians build houses or how Palestinians build water wells. And so that ties into the larger understanding of apartheid, but particularly that exactly what you said, for example, that there is lack of access to water or deliberate lack of access to water in Six Nations, for instance, the same thing is happening. Um, So you can see these parallels in Palestine as well. And so just for context as well, Israel is actually refusing to vaccinate Palestinians because under the Oslo Accords, which was basically a quote unquote peace agreement, which was signed by the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization, which was a ruling party in 1993 and the Israeli state. So both of those parties signed it. And ultimately they said that they don't have the responsibility to vaccinate Palestinians. Palestinians under the Oslo Accords. But if we're going back to international law, for instance, and we're going back to understandings of, you know, upholding solidarity and upholding support for Palestinians, especially during the context of COVID, we're thinking about the Article 56, for example, of the 1949 Fourth Geneva Convention, which essentially says that 
an occupying power has the duty of ensuring and maintaining with the cooperation of the national and local authorities, which would be the Palestinian Authority. They essentially have the duty to give medical and hospital establishments any kind of vaccine, any kind of support. But essentially, that is that is where we're talking about international law and i think when we when we go back to their refusal again it's it's a violation of international law yeah so so just drawing the parallel between what's happening in canada and what's happening in israel it's, it's a very very similar thing where palestinians are not only dehumanized because of their you know their race and ethnicity but they're also dehumanized because of what israel deems their religions are or what their ideologies are. They always claim that, you know, we teach our children to love death. They, 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 they claim that we are death-loving people. We, they claim that we don't know how to build, we only, only know how to destroy. And this is the type of language that is kind of normalized over there. I mean, if you go look at the media that's, you know, mass media in Israel, it makes Fox News look like, you know, democracy now. Um, it's very, 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 very dehumanizing just watching watching the news over there. It's very difficult to see how, you know, it's very obvious that the whole population over there is kind of being brainwashed. You know, especially since, you know, many, many scholars have spoken about this, how, you know, this kind of cultural hegemony that's happening. And uh, that's, you know, in, in the Israeli society, kids, since, you know, you're in kindergarten, since you, in, until you uh, join the IDF and when you turn 18, you're taught that, you know, Israel is a small nation that is surrounded by, you know, Arab terrorist nations and they are, they're all out to get you and that, you know, you were chosen by God and that so that you have to, you know, pick up arms and go and bomb people in Gaza and whatever and this is a good thing that you're doing right and it kind of creates a sense of camaraderie you know this is a bond between military people and everybody is you know um, obligated to join the uh, Israeli defense force uh, or as we call it, the Israeli occupation force well, as soon as they turn 18 right and if you don't you're criminalized you're thrown in jail and so Israeli society not only kind of dehumanizes people physically they also ha make sure that the, the culture is one of constant dehumanization of Palestinians and kind of it justifies all the violence that follows. Thank you so much, both of you, for giving us time and speaking to us. We really appreciated the insight and I know the listeners are going to enjoy this as well. And can you both tell us where people can find Palestinian youth movement online, specifically events and activities Toronto is doing as well? And just one more time, let us know what's happening on Saturday. Yeah, for sure. So you can join, uh, we have a website, Palestinian youthmovement.com you know it's written just like that and we have a page that we'll you know we'll share with you guys that you can kind of share with uh, a bunch of resources that's what's happening on Sheikh Jarrah um, a bunch of you know infographics videos articles and ways that people can get involved as well whether that be kind of you know just by joining actions and or even by contacting MPs and so forth <laughs> Thank you everyone for joining us for the first half of the episode with Palestinian Youth Movement. For the second half of the episode, we have a number of friends of the show with us today to discuss more about the history of Palestine as well as Canada's role in occupying Palestine. And so I'll let folks introduce themselves. With me today is my co-host. Hi everyone, it's Ryan. And with us are some guests. Uh, my name is, uh, is Sam Hirsch. I'm a community organizer here based in Ottawa and also a member of the Independent Jewish Voices and helped uh, with some of the folks on this panel uh, or on this podcast rather today. To 
to organize a, a resolution that passed at the NEP convention in uh, in April to uh, get uh, uh, the NEP to support a position on uh, boycotting illegal settlement products and uh, and sanctions on uh, on Israel or an arms embargo on Israel. Hi, I'm Amy Kishak. I'm a labor lawyer based in Ottawa. I'm Palestinian born in the West Bank and uh, happy to be talking about this important moment with all of you. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Genevieve. I am a anti-Zionist um, Jewish organizer and the former uh, membership and fundraising coordinator for Independent Jewish Voices. I'm also a law student and was one of the organizers along with Amy and, and Sam and Omar and others who supported the, the Palestine resolution at the, at the NDP convention. Hi, my name is uh, Omar Bergan. I'm a uh, researcher uh, for labor and uh, based out of Ottawa. I also helped organize to uh, bring about positive change in, in Canadian uh, politics and specifically with policies uh, of the NDP. And uh, for the beginning of this part of this episode, I wanted to kind of look at the this Saturday marks uh, 73 years since the Nakba, and I wanted to kind of give an explanation to an audience who may not be as familiar to situate them and how this has been an ongoing situation in Palestine. So I'm wondering if um, Omar or Amy would give us some of that background. Well, the Nakba, you know, I, I think people either know about it or they don't. Uh, and it, it really is the events surrounding displacement of 80% of the uh, indigenous population of Palestine uh, in order to create uh, the state of Israel. And, you know, the thing about the Nakba is that there is definitely a need, I think, in Western, in the Western world to do more education um, of the events that, that happen there, because, you know, it, it's not something that is well talked about. You know, if you live in the Middle East, everyone knows what happened in the Nakba. Everyone has a friend who was displaced uh, during the Nakba. Everyone has, you know, some sort of connection to it. And then as soon as you come somewhere like like Canada or, or Europe, or the U.S. or whatever, um, all of a sudden, I think one of the things that shocked me the most was people had alternative stories that they would tell about what actually happened. And it, it's quite mm -hmm. shocking because often these things would be totally based on nothing and they'd be complete lies or justifications for, for ethnic cleansing, essentially, mm -hmm. um, and ways for people to basically accept ethnic cleansing is something that, you know, it, it had to happen to those people. And, um, you know, there are all sorts of weird things that, you know, I talked to my, my grandmother uh, is someone who was displaced, you know, who, who lived in Haifa. And I knew the reason why she left and we knew about the massacres and, and the, the, the campaigns of terror. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. when we immigrated to Canada, people were telling me, actually, the reason that your family left is because the Arab leaders told them to, or mm -hmm. uh, the reason they left is actually because they were so anti-Semitic, they couldn't stand living with Jews. They're just like, it, it's it's quite shocking, but also, you know, it, it's, it is shocking mostly. And uh, I think that for people to understand how the Nakba is is the primary the, the the basically the genesis of of you know Israel Palestine and and all the the violence and how the Nakba continues to this day because um, that dispossession that displacement and the injustice uh, surrounding it still persists and is is actually ongoing with many different actions taken by the state of Israel to ensure that the that that area is has the least amount of Palestinians possible. Chime in to add to what Omar's saying. It's very similar for for me. My my experience with my family uh, was also displaced, dispossessed during the the Nakba. Uh, the stories are common across all sort of Palestinians from that who are around during that time period who lived in uh, those areas that are now referred to as Israel. 
I think what's been interesting the last week is all the parallels, the sort of visual uh, parallels between what's happening now and what, what happened back then. Um, even, even today with the um, bombardment of Gaza and, um, you know, Palestinians leaving uh, their homes, uh, trying to seek shelter elsewhere uh, to avoid airstrikes is, is something that, the, you know, the image of people carrying uh, just the clothes on their back to, to leave their home, perhaps not knowing when they'd be back is, is certainly something that Palestinians have experienced uh, time and again. And similarly with the the, the myths, propaganda that, that are being perpetrated to, to encourage or instill fear, those sort of terror campaigns as well from the government of Israel to uh, make it untenable for people to stay even where they may have a claim to stay. Um, and that's certainly true for Palestinians in Israel right now who are facing, you know, assault by mobs of settlers and Israelis, in addition to just the armed, the armed forces uh, as well. All of this sort of harkens back to the Nakba. It's been interesting uh, in the last few years um, in the West, you do hear more uh, about the Nakba. People are speaking more openly about that history, because I'd agree with, with Omar. Growing up, it was like very taboo to talk about the genesis of that dispossession um, or that displacement initially, um, or to say that your family was, uh, or to lay claim to your family having been from uh, Yafa, the Lid, uh, Haifa, um, when in, uh, because in the West, it's very much that is Israel and how how dare you assert a, a claim there uh, and back home you have the opposite which is that people wear the the keys of their old homes that they lost around their necks so um, and they they still talk about the those stories they're still shattered by those experiences um, so it is really quite uh, an alternate reality that we've created for ourselves uh, here here in the west but I can see certainly that narrative is changing and and it's good to have these conversations and educate folks uh, about uh, the genesis of uh, of where we are today thank you for that history and also for sharing your personal family stories we're really privileged to hear that we want to talk a little bit now about the process by which the Nakba is ongoing in in Palestine, in occupied regions. So, you know, we're hearing a lot about the language of evictions. And um, in the first part, we talked about that word and the parallels that that draws to an eviction here and how it's not necessarily the same or the level of violence that is inherent in in an eviction in Shiksha is like not the same as what we would see there. But there's still a process that sort of leads to these things in the courts and there's also paramilitary groups involved. And so if anybody um, can speak to that and just um, any insight on what that process is like, it'll be very insightful. Well, I, I think, you know, when we talk about the, the Nakba being ongoing, it's just that, you know, in 1948, there was a desire to have, um, you know, this land, to have possession of the land with the least amount of Palestinians there. Um, you know, essentially, this was kind of, you know, uh, Zionism in the 30s and 40s was very proud to say that it was a colonial project, like they had, you know, they would refer to it as colonialism. They'd had the, um, you know, the, the you could buy bonds in the, I think it was called the, the, um, the Zionist colonial bank or something to that effect. Uh, essentially, it was not, it was not something that was hidden at all. They really said, we want to colonize the land. We want to take as much land away from the Arabs, the Palestinians, and, um, you know, have them disappear, essentially. And when we, you know, this was done on a grand scale in 1948, with 80% of the population being expropriated. And then when the world started to pay attention and start talking about, you know, well, ethnic cleansing is not okay, and, and starting maybe 
having presence of international people there and and kind of a standstill. You know, Israel has found all these different ways to to continue to pursue um, essentially um, the demographic nature that they seek and and kind of the ethnic purity that they seek for for this place. They, you know, and and it's it's done often through policies uh, where they can do this as, as kind of incrementally as possible. You know, some people talk about it as, as a slow ethnic cleansing. And for example, you know, in, in Jerusalem, you know, East Jerusalem is um, at the end of um, 1948, um, it was declared kind of like there's East and West Jerusalem and uh, is West was part of Israel and East was not. It was part of uh, part that was controlled by by Jordan. But effectively, East Jerusalem is is mostly populated by uh, Palestinians. And so um, progressively, there's been really an effort to push out as many families as possible. And, you know, this is done not through anything that resembles kind of like a fair judicial process. It's really kind of any any kind of inch they can they can get without anyone pushing back is really what they're doing. You know, they they'll say that the houses in some parts of East Jerusalem used to belong to someone Jewish you know, centuries ago. And so we need to put people of the same race in there. Um, and, you know, there's been challenges to the documents that have been produced that they're forgery, but the Israeli courts typically do not care about this kind of thing. They're, um, it's pretty much in the constitution of the state that, you know, guaranteeing the Jewish nature of the state is a priority and they will do this by any means necessary. Um, so, um, you know, they'll uh, they'll say that we need to take houses back for people who happen to be Jewish, but anyone who's Palestinian who has an actual legal claim, well, those are are kind of erased by by uh, absentee property laws that you know that were enacted right after the Nakba, uh, basically saying that if you left and you happen to be Palestinian, well, you get nothing and and uh, you can't ever lay claim to claim to again. Um, so there's all these policies, to, you know, that that are in place in, in Israel um, on housing um, and on zoning that effectively are to exclude Palestinians and to concentrate them in the tiniest areas possible uh, while, you know, allowing people uh, who are Jewish to take over houses, to take over neighborhoods uh, progressively to with this idea that they will at one point be the majority and, and stay the majority and have expelled, finished, finished forcing everyone out uh, as the project started in 1948. To, to add to that, uh, as a you know, as a Jewish person, um, I can you know essentially go to Israel, and and this is what's been happening, sort of, uh, is is that you know I can go to Israel, go to someone's house, and say you know this house is mine now. So a Palestinian who's been living there for decades, for for or centuries, really generations, as someone who is a, a Jew from North America who's never stepped foot. Uh, in Palestine, who has no ancestral, really no ancestral history there. My, my family's from uh, Eastern Europe, centuries and centuries, uh, and uh, and go there and, and, and take that house. And in fact, that uh, we, we've been hearing a story in the media um, uh, on democracy now that <clears throat> this exact thing happened where there was um, a man from Brooklyn who came uh, to someone's house, uh, you know, said essentially, this is this is my house. Uh, you know, I, I have a claim, you know, a biblical claim or, or whatnot. And has now been living in half of the house for 12 years. And, you know, nowhere else in, in the world really is that fair, except, or I wouldn't say except in, in, in Israel, but but it's considered fair by the courts. Um, just to give folks an idea of how egregious the situation is that, uh, you know, I myself, as someone who have, has absolutely no claim, can go there and, and claim uh, land that is not mine from someone who, who's lived there. Uh, for centuries. And then just to harken back a bit to um, the history and sort of like what we're taught 
you know, in the West and, 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 and in our own Jewish education is that, you know, it, it, when, when there was that the UN partition plan in, in 1947, that, you know, it was the, it was the Arabs who said, who said, no, who didn't accept that plan. So it's their fault, uh, right? It's their fault. They chose to leave, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of the sort of thing that, that we're taught um, when we're younger. Um, so it's, you know, a, lo- a lot of uh, propaganda to us when we're, when we're that age. And I just want to elaborate too, that it's sort of, uh, it's not just in East Jerusalem that these things happen. Um, I was reading a great thread online on Twitter uh, by Nimr Sabtani um, that kind of gives the account of what's happening in other parts of Israel. Um, I think there's this false narrative that there is sort of a peaceful coexistence uh, between uh, Arab Israelis um, and Jewish Israelis, not just though, but but obviously that that's not true. Um, That's kind of a myth that that's propagated. There are a lot of um, uh, accounts that in the last 10, 20 years of uh, local governments, you know, uh, municipalities making decisions around zoning, uh, around um, uh, really ensuring the, the getaway of uh, Arab communities and Arab populations within Israel itself in other places, even where the land is, is less contested as it were, and where there are groups of uh, the numbers are higher of, of Arabs in a particular uh, uh, community or neighborhood, there is a practice of, of active sort of settler colonialism, whereby folks will actually settle inside those communities, Jewish folks, to ensure that the Arab uh, population, um, uh, you know, that, again, that there's that uh, not not a growth of that population, and to to prevent Arab quote unquote Arab control is is sort of is the language that's used. And again, it's um it's it's not this is not like a, a rare isolated sort of instance. It, it obviously it's exasperated by the fact that those folks in East Jerusalem would would lose um, uh, ancestral uh, uh, land and and. Uh, you know, be, be uh, dispossessed of, of citizenship uh, along with it or, or some sort of connection to uh, a place, um, a community. Uh, but even in the communities where Arabs have been um, uh, allegedly or so-called peacefully existing for, for years, there are efforts to uproot them, uh, even where there is no uh, legal claim or, or anything, uh, uh, you know, uh, guaranteeing them that, and even where the individuals may indeed have Israeli citizenship, uh, but are still being treated differently. And it, it brings us back to the, the the misnomer that's been going on, or that, that's applied to uh, the quote-unquote conflict, uh, the move away from, or, you know, the rejection of the term apartheid, but the reality is really uh, quite there. There is active uh, uh, segregation and dispossession throughout Israel, not just uh, in East Jerusalem. With that context in mind, you know, all of us are here in Canada, and we can see what Canadian politicians are saying. We can also see the Trudeau government's record on this. And so what, let's talk about the situation here in Canada and like what the Canadian government's role in all of this is. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. And I, I think one thing that we're hearing a lot is is people um, kind of reacting almost in shock um, that our own prime minister, uh, you know, fervently denied there being any um, aggressor uh, on the part of Israel and, and saying that, again, this is a uh, that Israel has a right to, to, to defend itself, quote unquote. And um, I mean, to, to us, it's not shocking, right? Because these are these are settler, settler colonial nations. 
um, that, that stick together in all of their forms and in the same way that Palestinians are, indigenous Palestinians are, are resisting land theft and dispossession in Palestine. Um, indigenous activists here and across Turtle Island have been drawing those parallels from the beginning of um, how this is an interconnected struggle. So we see um, a response from the prime minister today and in, in question period um, being asked by Jagmeet Singh and um, where I guess I think a lot of people have been heartened um, that Jagmeet has, has actually called for an arms embargo against um, against Israel as a result of ongoing Israeli aggression. So that is not something that we've seen a lot of um, on the part of Canadian politicians. Um, and we absolutely need to encourage and, and hold uh, Canada specifically accountable because um, in the same way that Canada and the US uh, are funding arms to Israel, um, we, we're also seeing them, you know, vote uh, inside with Israel at the United Nations and really just kind of use um, their foreign power to prop up uh, Israeli apartheid globally. Uh, I think it's um, it's important too to remember that Canada's history and involvement with Israel is really long-standing. Um, certainly, the the way that Israel has modeled um, its its system of uh, occupation and settlement is 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 indirect. Uh, uh, you know, picked up, taken from the notes of of Canada's history um, and current practices, in in its sort of building those mirroring those colonial structures. And it wasn't that long ago we had, um, and we still do, but, but I, you know, even during the, the Harper era where Stephen Harper was really vilified for his cozy relationship with Israel, um, we really haven't seen a break from, from that approach. Um, and I think sort of the most symbolic example of, um, of that relationship is, is Canada Park, that the park named for Canada that actually is in the West Bank is um, is really a, an extension of, of the settlements themselves that's to honor uh, more or less that relationship, I think speaks volumes. Uh, and this, of course, the, the military trade relationship um, is huge and it cannot be understated. And I think, um, I think there is really where the like, I mean, we're, we're actively complicit, we're morally complicit by not sanctioning it, we make it financially viable to to continue the occupation. But, uh, but, but the military exports um, um, themselves are just the most literal and, and direct link you can really track there. And just going back maybe to the the Trudeau government specifically, you know, I think it's like with a lot of things, you know, Justin Trudeau basically just picked off picked up from where Stephen Harper left things. Um, and didn't make any tangible changes to policy. Um, any changes were mostly kind of symbolic, or there's a lot of virtue singling, signaling that happens with the with the Trudeau government, where they'll, you know, say feminist foreign policy over and over, and then become the biggest arms dealer to the Middle East. Um, uh, you know, they'll say that the environment's important, but be become the the largest emitter in the G7. This is a very common kind of trend in it. But it, Palestine was no different. Um, you know, essentially, Stephen Harper was very good at just saying, you know, I'm pro-Israel no matter what. Uh, Justin Trudeau won't say that, but he'll just keep doing the same policies, uh, adopting the same policies as Stephen Harper. Um, you know, Trudeau expanded the trade agreement, uh, the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement, which um, even though Amnesty International and peace groups and a UN rapporteur were telling him, do not 
include settlements in this. You're basically encouraging war crimes um, that did not deter him. And not only that, but once there was a court case to challenge the actual labeling of settlement products in Canada, um, because there was a challenge saying that you can't label these as products of Israel because they're not considered a part of Israel, even according to Canadian policy, the Trudeau government went to court to defend settlements. So, and one side, you know, you'll have Justin Trudeau today saying that we find settlements very problematic. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're helping them. So don't say they're problematic and then help them. Um, It's this constant kind of basically hypocrisy. And, uh, you know, and again and again, it's not just with settlements, but, you know, there was uh, Canada has been at every step doing what Harper did and trying to undermine Palestinian access to any international body. Uh, Canada objected to the the International Criminal Court investigating uh, war crimes conducted by Israel. Not only that, but even apparently sent a letter. Amnesty called them out saying that they, they, they basically threatened the court's funding. They said, don't forget who funds you. We fund you so you do not take this case. Um, and they did this at other international bodies as well. And lastly, the other thing that they, kept, that they kind of kept up from the Harper era is attacks on Canadian civil society um, and Palestine solidarity within Canada. And this would happen in many ways, um, you know, through Trudeau constantly um, uh, attacking university movements uh, and movements on campus, uh, you know, the, the condemning Israeli apartheid week on campuses, attacking uh, people who supported Palestinian nonviolent boycott um, to put pressure on Israel, and also adopting, um, you know, very problematic definition of uh, anti-Semitism, uh, which has basically been, uh, you know, uh, con- decried by human uh, human rights groups, uh, civil liberties groups, academics throughout Canada, saying this is just a, a definition to stifle, you know, Palestinian voices and to stifle discussion about Palestine. So really, you know, there's very incremental changes that, that were made from Harper, such as, you know, restoring funding to UNRWA. But at the same time, they'll restore funding to UNRWA, but then give political backing to the blockade that requires funding for UNRWA. Um, you know, and um, they also changed a couple symbolic votes at the UN, but then will do other things at the UN to block Palestinian uh, any sort of progress or accountability uh, for, for Israeli crimes. Uh, so really, I, I do, there's often debate who's worse, Harper or, or, or uh, Trudeau on, on Israel-Palestine. And I'm kind of leaning towards Trudeau because, you know, at least Harper was honest about what he was doing. And Trudeau was just basically giving people false hope and a false sense that he's being fair and judicious when, in fact, he's very, you know, he, he's basically encouraging and supporting uh, violence towards Palestinians in Palestine. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, and also just to add to what Amy was saying about Canada Park, because if I recall, there's um there's a bird sanctuary or something weird in, in Israel called like the Stephen Harper Bird Sanctuary or something like that, just to to echo and emulate that sort of weird close relationship that Stephen Harper has still kept, uh, you know, since he's been out of office. Uh, uh, and I think recently did something with the IDF. Anyways, it's it's a, it's an odd relationship with Netanyahu that he, that he's got and and the Israeli government. But yeah, I mean. So one of one of the th- one of the statistics that's interesting too is that of the export permits for military goods, Israel is the highest. Three hundred eleven export permits is the highest non-U.S. or the highest non-West Western, I think, nation in terms of military export permits for military goods of any country to to Canada. And since I think in twenty eleven. Since 2011, the the military exports in terms of in in, in dollars has has doubled. I think it was six about 6.3 million in 2011. Now it's a 13.7, so more than doubled uh, in military goods and technology. Um, 
which might be a, a bit of a drop in the bucket, but you know, obviously, it would still be big if I think the message is big in terms of um, ending those uh, those those arms because Canada does have a close relationship with 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 Israel and, and a lot of groups in 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 the country that are particularly influential uh, in in the world when it comes to being on the sort of pro-Israel or as we like to call the anti-Palestinian advocacy groups uh, like Sija like B'nai B'rith, like the Simon Wiesenthal Center, but also just to move the conversation a bit uh, to what other politicians are saying. I find it interesting. And we, we, we've, we've been seeing a lot of this break uh, with leadership. And the Green Party is a really good example of this, um, where their statement uh, was incredibly weak. Uh, Anime Paul's, the leader's statement, uh, was a lot of both-sidedism. It was almost worse than, than Justin Trudeau's or Mark Carnot's uh, uh, statement. Um, but we saw Paul Manley, um, and, uh, uh, Jenica Atwin, uh, uh, you know, come out hard against that, but even Elizabeth May, whose statement wasn't very good. Um, but it was better than the official green party statement. So we saw a lot of different statements from three different members of, of the caucus, um, the parliamentary caucus from the leader. Um, and also, I mean, what's also interesting too, just to note, um, is that, the Bloc Québécois, that's usually pretty good uh, when it comes to Palestine. It does a lot of stuff, uh, at least on, when it comes to recognition of a Palestinian state, has not said anything at all about uh, about Jarrah, not that I could see. Um, so, that, I mean, I think that's that's odd. It's interesting to me as, as well, and maybe they're shifting on that. Um, but yeah, and also when it comes to the NDP, it's, it's, it's as, as I think uh, Amy mentioned earlier, or Omar, um, it, you know, it's good to see Jigmeet finally echo what the membership has been saying. I, I think part of that is obviously the context that we're in and not just, uh, I, th- I think perhaps if this was another context, then maybe uh, he wouldn't be outwardly saying that he supports sanctions, but I, I'm glad, uh, not sanctions rather, but an arms embargo, but I'm happy about that. And it's nice to see also the normalization of calling Israel uh, an apartheid state, because I think for for a while uh, it, it wasn't, it was quite taboo to say that. And conversation or when speaking with folks, but I think we've seen organizations like uh, Beth Salem in Israel, um, really well-known right uh, human rights organization in Israel, um, call it an apartheid state, which is, I think, unprecedented, and 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 Human Rights Watch calling it a, officially an apartheid state. And those human rights organizations coming out and saying that respected, especially Human Rights Watch, which, which didn't necessarily have a great track record when it came to, um, to Israel-Palestine, calling it an apartheid state is pretty huge. So there's a lot of momentum on that front. Um, obviously, it took pretty terrible, egregious event, as it always does, to get there. But there is some movement uh, on that front, I think. Yeah, just to, to briefly jump in, though, I mean, what Palestinian organizers have been saying for a long time is that, um, I mean, we shouldn't be waiting for non-Palestinian organizations to repeat what Palestinians on the ground have been saying from the beginning. So, I mean, it it's great that Human Rights Watch and, and Betzalem have been catching up with this work has been done and exposed already for for years before they, it took them to get to this point. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said just about that as well. But like, as, as always, Palestinians um, on the ground and, and in the diaspora are leading leading the way. Uh, thanks for that, Jen. You know, sometimes I also forget because I'm always like, oh, that's so nice. They gave us that little that little crumb we've been waiting for. So it's good to be like reminded that we're what we're demanding is really not that outrageous. And it's really very much long, long, long overdue. Um, although it is welcome to see, I think that the count may be higher now, but at least five members of parliament who've also used in Canada use the expression apartheid. Uh, in their tweets, um, uh, three who've used ethnic cleansing 
referencing, and it wasn't that long ago uh, that the NDP, as a lot of us are familiar with, was tossing out uh, candidates uh, who had been duly nominated uh, from, from running in elections because they precisely used those terms, uh, ethnic cleansing and, and apartheid. Um, so it is... Um, it is a, a shift, certainly uh, in in the discourse, um, and hopefully a shift in policy. But even just to uh, that, there is a space for for voices like ours, who I think uh, you know had uh, sort of been written off as being too extreme, um, you know, have a place in in, in Canadian politics, and hopefully we we'll, can get uh, some some space in the media pages uh, and column, you know, uh, air airwaves as well for for those kinds of remarks because I think that there's also been a censoring of, of that kind of uh, that kind of um, calling out uh, of uh, again apartheid ethnic cleansing using using that uh, those expressions. And so we've also seen some statements of solidarity amongst labor and other. Um, organizations in, in society. And so I'm wondering what you think about the movement on that, whether you think a lot of them have gone far enough, you know, a, lo a lot of organizations supported the NDP resolution, but we didn't necessarily see like that level of support publicly now that things mm -hmm. are going on. Um, this is also happening in the context of the Canadian Association Uni of University Teachers censure of the University of Toronto for the underlying hiring decision, which we've talked about before for um, on the podcast but um it's been it's also become very acute now so i'm curious what um folks have to say about that yeah you know one of the things that was a little bit uh frustrating to be candid in working around the organizing around the palestine resolution is we we got a lot of quiet support in them and obviously that's reflected in the the vote results at the end of the day a, a big a big portion of that support did come from labor, uh, from organized uh, labor and the union delegates throughout the convention who did um, uh, extend their support to the resolution were told to, to support us, some of whom uh, you know, had politicians who just uh, in as early as uh, 2019 or as recently as 2019 had, had taken a trip with the Canadian Labor Congress to the West Bank in Israel and, and kind of, you know, bore witness to uh, to to the uh, atrocities and, and the uh, uh, the injustices there, um, but still did not release very publicly reports and findings and recommendations, although, you know, you can find them uh, online, but they're very discreet about them. Um, so it is it is good to see um, statements of solidarity that are a lot stronger. We've seen them in the last week. Um, PSAC, QP, there have been a, a few, and that's certainly encouraging. Um, but again, the statements do still speak to pressure in, in generic uh, or generalized terms. They don't call for specific sanctions, um, boycotts or, or, you know, uh, divestments. These are these are unions that have uh, a say in public pensions that likely could benefit from uh, divesting from uh, companies that are engaged uh, uh, in the in uh, the occupation of Palestine. And so it's uh, there's a lot of work. I think we're still quite a ways away from from getting um, a mainstream place on on BDS, um, but I think this is the moment to start demanding that because we're starting to see a break in the old patterns, and there may this may be a moment, but it will take a lot of organizing uh, uh, to get us there. Uh, but uh, you know, at least behind closed doors, they're saying uh, some nice things about us. I guess we've got that going. Yeah, and just to, to briefly add to that, like we, it's great that even that you know we're having these questions being asked in Parliament uh, as questions, and we're seeing these statements on Twitter. But what what's stopping these MPs who have expressed support from 
you know, creating a private members bill that just basically does the, the very things they've been demanding for on social media. So I think what we're all kind of calling for is, is um, we're really, we are happy to see these statements of support. Um, they, they can't be vague. They can't just be piecemeal or, or uh, like vague platitudes. They, we were now calling on um, so-called progressive uh, politicians across this country to actually show us a plan um, to get out of uh what you know canadian complicitness um in this whole this whole process and i think you know we we've touched on this a few times the this idea of there being a chill on on talking about this publicly and that we've we've all seen it in different ways you know i think in canada it's actually quite pronounced uh because i have friends in academia who you know said to me i can't wait to go back to universities in, in europe but if they're they they specialize in, in israel palestine they said you know in, in european congresses and, and and academic conferences there's much more honest um discussion of this and in canada there's this severe chill um that happens in in the mainstream whether it's in media whether it's in academia uh so it's it's quite pronounced over here and i, I do think that's why it's 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 quite important for people to speak out um, and be specific, you know, and it, it's not enough to say, well, I, I believe in human rights. I stand in solidarity with Palestinians, you know, all the it's, this conflict is so terrible. You know, we, we, we've, this conflict is now, I mean, what's going on in Israel, Palestine has been going on for long enough that people it's clearer and clearer to people. Anyone who picks up a book about it will read about it and say, well, it's kind of clear what the power dynamic is. Um, and so I think it's important for people to to push back against, you know, the chill to speak up. And this was hard for me personally, even, you know, I was raised saying, you know, be careful, don't talk about Palestine too much in Canada, because, you know, it might hurt your job prospects. And, and that's my story is not unique in any way. Everyone's experienced something. And uh, it's it, it's very hard for people who are Middle Eastern background, um, and it's 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 definitely difficult for um, uh, our Jewish allies who um, were grew up with Zionism and and who who then come to that realization they face a lot of um, you know uh, pushback from families and and shaming from families and and from um, other people in their community. Um, but I think that's why it was important for us to work on this resolution for the NDP and and focus on two very specific areas, because I think it's important to be specific in your demands, um, whether it's of your union, whether it's of your pension, um, whether it's of your politicians and say, you know, we have to stop, you know, military exports and, and imports. It's, it's kind of a, a bilateral uh, issue and, and both of them are very problematic. You know, uh, just to give one example, uh, Canada di is buying a, a drone uh, to survey the Arctic. Um, and this drone is manufactured by the same company that built drones to uh, uh, basically massacre people in the Gaza Strip. So we're encouraging these things. We're very actively as a country, this country is encouraging these things. And I think in our activism, we have to um, we have to be vocal. And I think there's more of us who get this injustice than there are people justifying it. And it's time for all of us to elevate our voices um, and, and push back on these things. What do we want to see from from civil society, from these groups, given that, you know, there's a lot of power in labor and there's I think groups underestimate the power that they hold, you know, bringing up pensions was a great one. Public sector pensions are huge. They're the, some of the biggest investors anywhere, and they're making a difference in the climate movement. So what are some of the things, you know, aside from that, that we would like to see from, from Canadian civil society in support of Palestine? 
Yeah, I, I think just to echo what what Omar said very eloquently just before is is that we want people to be specific, quite frankly, right? I mean, we saw a lot of like initial statements from the CLC, the Canadian Labor Congress, and you know PSAC, the Public Service Alliance of Canada, um, and other organizations that were saying things like um, at first a good condemnation, calling out for what it is at the cleansing, but then saying, you know, we should take action. And it's it's really good to say we should take action and things like that. And, it, you know, it's even great to see that. But but again, like what Amy and Omar just said, what we want them to say in terms of rhetoric is we need sanctions, we need boycotts and things like that. But but also like like you were, you were just saying, uh, Ryan, also to have a look at their own internal affairs and seeing what they could do in, in their own organizations, you know, where they could where they could go, what they could boycott, what organizations should they stop being a part of? Because I know there, in terms of some of the professional work I do, I know that there's some organizations that deal uh, with um, groups that might have an indirect link with 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 uh, with Israel or the occupied territories. Um, to say, you know, we need to, we need to stop working with these groups, or we need to, you know, look into our affairs and see and see what you know what things we should stop doing and, and public sector pensions is a good a good way to do that and also to, when when talking to the government you know saying what specific things we need or we want which is boycotts or sanctions uh, or anything like that one of the things that we have been seeing quite acutely now is what is termed the deadly exchange between US police and the Israeli occupation forces or the Israeli defense forces let's speak about that a little bit and and how that has played out on the ground. I think one of the most striking things was seeing an Israeli military person kneeling on the neck of a of a Palestinian and how that drew a direct parallel to what happened with George Floyd. And so I think images like that are really helpful, whatever twisted way that sounds, in helping people see those parallels. But the deadly exchange, I think, is something that like, it's like a good, a good word to use to describe it. Um, and curious for thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a long um, history of solidarity between Black folks in America and the States uh, struggling for, for fighting for liberation um, uh, here and, and Palestinians um, uh, in Palestine and abroad, a, a long history of, of uh, solidarity across those movements. It made me think of a uh, reductress <laughs> headline that I saw today that was like woman with BLM in her, like white woman with BLM in her uh, Twitter bio doesn't know where she stands on the Palestine uh, uh, conflict or, or whatever. So that kind of made me laugh a little bit. It makes you think of um, the <laughs> A Twitter troll that I think Sam and I were going back and forth with during the NDP convention. Do you remember who was like uh, in his bio? His bio said that he was for um, abolition before it was cool and was yeah. fighting us over <laughs> over the the merits of the Palestine resolution and and uh, and and really the the validity that of our claim that there really is a, a apartheid uh, in Palestine. All these things. So. There's a lot of uh, hypocrisy of, uh, among white folks here. You also see uh, that kind of mentality, those contradictions. Um, I think it's it's important to forget all of that and, and really focus on the solidarity work that can be had and the shared struggle, I think, really between, you know, Black, Indigenous, uh, you know, other racialized folks um, here and everywhere across the world, because we have a lot more uh, in common and a lot of, um, a lot of our struggle is interconnected. Uh, certainly, um, from military standpoint, and from from even the, um, the the tools of oppression that are used, the example of the tear gas canisters that are used in Ferguson uh, being the one and the same that were that are used 
uh, in Gaza before uh, those 2014 uh, um, uh, actions in Ferguson. So there, there really is um, a lot, a lot of um, interconnectedness in in our struggle and our. I think our liberations are really very much linked as as any sort of the the broad decolonization uh, agenda uh, that we all share is ties us together for sure. Yeah, and just another thing to add is is um, Israel is the IDF, um, the Israeli Defense Forces, is also uh, actively rec- recruiting in, in Canadian schools and universities. And there was a, an article that that highlighted um, how in, in Montreal there's a, a, a school that actively promotes um, and, and encourages Canadian um, people to to sign up for the IDF. So I mean. I, and I believe too, like that, that violates um, many, many, many different laws, including the Foreign Enlistment Act. So uh, people can check out as well. There was an article at the um, Canadian Dimension that basically highlighted all of that. So it's, it's, these aren't kind of just kind of hypothetical or, or metaphorical parallels. There's active um, material uh, and, and uh, real links being made between the army in, in Canada and the army in, in, in Israel as well. Yeah, just to add to that, actually, on a personal experience, I I know uh, folks who have actually gone and served in the IDF in Jews from Montreal, myself being from Montreal, I went to Jewish uh, day camp, uh, or not day camp, rather Jewish uh, sleepaway camp, you know, we do the whole thing, we'd sing Hatikva, the Jewish national anthem at the beginning of the day with Jewish uh, Israeli flags flying anyways, but uh, there there were I remember there was somebody who, um, when he got off the bus going home, who went and was in an IDF uniform and was going that same day to fly to Israel, it was about 10 or 15 years ago to serve uh, in the IDF. So so that does certainly happen. I've, I've seen it firsthand. But what I also wanted to say in terms of the, the deadly exchange and, and sort of that, you know, the, the knee on the neck thing, I remember when that when that comparison was made. And I remember immediately um, there was uh, there were uh, mainstream um, pro-Israel organizations claiming that that compar- comparison is anti-Semitic. So that, you know, the the pro-Israel establishment um, is very um, keen to, to to make sure that, that that comparison doesn't come to light. And also we, we've been seeing recently too, there there was um, B'nai B'rith released a statement around, and I think Jen actually tweeted about this uh, earlier today, about the, the, the protests uh, happening and, and how uh, B'nai B'rith was commenting about how uh, well, we hope that the um, the police or bylaw make sure that they don't break any laws, uh, things around COVID, and that they're being safe. And we didn't see that that same narrative last year around uh, around the protests around George Floyd from these organizations, right? So I, I think there's there's a, a very keen and 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 um, thing to, to to make sure that they 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 don't connect themselves with this movement for Black Lives and 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 trying to break that solidarity between the Black community and the Palestinian community, which is strong and. And there are many comparisons to be made. Um, and they're trying very, very hard to make sure that those comparisons uh, don't continue to come to light. And so that leads us to talk really well about media and what role media has played in, in this. You know, on one hand, we've seen the New York Times reporting on it. We've seen Mohammed Al-Kurd speaking on CNN. Like these are huge. But at the same time, the language that's being used in the media is, is still frames this in a way that you know implies that there is a clash or two sides and just no real analysis of power. Um, and so what are some of the harms of that? And 
also, what are some ways that we can push back against that? I mean, a lot of the language is really um, dehumanizing is, is one way to certainly put it. One notable, and I, I don't know if it's still up, but it's, it's actually, it was on CBC, but it's actually an Associated Press uh, sort of wire piece. But the headline reads, rockets killed two Israelis, 26 die in Gaza as Israel hits Hamas. And it, so it sounds, it kind of takes away the 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 act um, of, of who killed whom in, in the latter portion when speaking about Palestinians and, and treats it in this sort of passive uh, tense. And there's a lot of that passivity um, uh, in how these headlines are, are, writ are written. They're obvious, uh, usually in the passive voice, um, you know, they'll say uh, numbers dead or, or, or uh, lives, you know, uh, like uh, um, as, a, as a statistic and taking away the, the the killing of it, the, the real action, the real harm, uh, and, um, and and not really uh, framing it in terms of uh, accountability. Um, that is one example. We've also seen a lot of um, clips online that seem to, um, well, shared uh, uh, by uh, Israeli politicians, uh, uh, by uh, uh, folks on the ground who, who, you know, I'm sure have um, uh, verified accounts even pretending to speak from a place of legitimacy or posting videos. Uh, in one instance, they're using a video from the uh, war in Syria from two years ago and pretending that the video, captioning it as if it's happening in Gaza today, as though those strikes are, uh, were, were emanating from Gaza to, to Israel. Taking TikTok videos that happen in a completely different city and pretending it's Palestinians faking their own deaths or, or what have you. And it's wild because a lot of these things are pretty easy to verify. Like they don't, I don't know how they're like not wise to how easy it is for us to like catch on. There's like a watermark to the Twitter and, and things like that. But it, kind of the damage is done. People are very quick to share misinformation. Um, you know, we've, I think the expression fake news has been like said to the point that it's lost all meaning, <laughs> but it makes propaganda like this um, very easy to spread the ability to, to do it on social media um, and things do spread uh, uh, quite, quite quickly. And, um, and a lot of it's also very like tit for tat. They did this. So then there's this or or you heard this piece of misinformation. And so therefore, this other element is uh, is therefore completely invalidated. The example of that being the um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later in it in and of itself as an as an incident or event, but the Jerusalem Day um, uh, concert festival really is how it looks, you know, Israeli celebrating in the street on Jerusalem Day with the uh, burning tree sort of in the, in the background uh, at the, the Dome of the Rock. And, uh, you know, that imagery is really stark and, and, sh and shocking and appalling for a lot of reasons. There was initial reports that it was actually a fire at uh, Al-Aqsa Marks. That's not, not, that I think is not, what happened, right? It was a tree that was on fire, but no one knew who burnt the tree or who lit the tree on fire. And that sort of became, I think, a point of obsession for people to be able to say, your side is, is the side that is sharing misinformation, kind of really missing the point that in the foreground of this photo are people cheering in the streets, singing, you know, uh, supremacist anthems, uh, while the other half of the, the city is is experiencing um, great pain, po policing, uh, surveillance, dispossession, assaults for you know the whole the whole uh, the whole experience. Um, you know, I think uh, we're relying heavily on what's playing out in social media, and in a way, it's been like like everything else. Certainly, last summer during the protests most of the interesting things are to be seen are on social media from folks on the ground in the protests in the demonstrations 
showing and being able to shed a light on police brutality or, or whatever else is happening. So in that sense, it's really eye opening. And it's a, but it is also uh, unfortunate that there are not mainstream news uh, organizations actually willing to do the work uh, of investigating and uh, and really covering uh, uh, the issues um, and relying on, you know, wire pieces to pad uh, out a website without actually doing uh, any, of the, any of the work to really tell the story uh, or to give uh, to give voice to, to folks uh, on, a, on a larger platform. And of course, we end up with uh, people sharing propaganda, assuming that, that that's all there is, or, or again, not interrogating it further. Yeah, and I guess I just want to well, I want to go back to that video that Amy was talking about before that I guess there's also the like very neutral nascent language that's like it was a clash um, and that's something we see a lot um, in the media as as if um, you know both sides were contributing equally to the to the via to the violence you know and and that's so so dangerous um, because obviously it's, it's not it's not true but but just to talk about that video just briefly um, and and also the irony of them them celebrating and dancing on the Western Wall Plaza, where where there stood before that, uh, you know, uh, a neighbor, um, a Moroccan uh, neighborhood, the Moroccan quarter that was there for 800 years, right, and that was uh, destroyed uh, to 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 build a place for for Jews to pray in the Western Wall Plaza. Um, you know, they were also and and people are were going back and forth, right, as Amy was saying, where you know, were they were they celebrating the tree burning, this and that, but it, you know, to me, it doesn't really matter because what they were saying in that in that song was classic Hebrew phrase, which means may their memories be erased. And that's something that Jews will say when they talk about like the Nazis, for example, or like Pontius Pilate, or like historically, historic like enemy of the Jews, um, to the Jewish people. So the fact that they would relate Palestinians really suffering uh, to that is, is quite, you know, quite terrible. And, and also just like watching that as a Jew, I got very emotional because it was just this, I was just watching that and I was like, this is not what represents the Jewish community that I grew up in or that I know. So it, for me, it was, it was hard to see that it was hard to watch. And, and I think that's also what we, we spoke a bit about social, social media. I think there are things that people share and it's quick, quick to quick to share like bad things, but also like social media has been good because it's it, it's been able to sort of uh, cut through that right and it, as it always is there's a good side and a bad side but it's able to cut through that um that mainstream media narrative and actually show what's happening on the ground a lot of the time so i think that's that's also been helpful in a lot of ways it's um hard to talk about this this week because things just keep getting worse and when you think they're like gonna stabilize it i don't know where this is gonna go in the next couple of days but I think one of the things that's been, um, I find really unsettling and, and very sinister is, is sort of the mob, uh, rule that's sort of taking hold in Israel. And I, I don't say that to say that the, it's anarchy the way that, uh, Israeli government is, is phrasing it, but, uh, they're, they're frankly abated and, and aided by, uh, the military and, and the police. But to see, um, uh, non-military personnel, you know, the, the civilians of Israel walking through the street, marching, chanting death to Arabs, I think has been one of the scariest pieces of this, this whole saga. The video, you know, as disturbing as that video is, there's been more disturbing uh, of videos, uh, people being pulled out of their cars, uh, trampled, uh, beaten in the streets by, you know, Tens of people swarming them and hundreds other recording it on uh, cell phones and and uh, essentially, um, as I said, really like sort of lynchings in, in, this, in the streets uh, of Israel. There have been uh, reports across Israel uh, of um, of uh, 
uh, you know, Jewish uh, settlers going into Arab neighborhoods, uh, breaking the glass uh, of, of storefronts, breaking uh, and destroying uh, uh, storefronts and properties uh, in Arab neighborhoods and communities. Um, so it, it, that part's really a uh, um, uh, terrifying to me. It's the product, I think, of, of many years of, of propaganda in Israel uh, and conscript, and a, a cons you know, a society where, where conscription uh, and demonization of a, of an enemy is is so normalized. You know, there certainly uh, are peace movements in Israel as well, but but you know that that socialization is a big part of it. Um, and the fact that that's sort of been encouraged and, and, and propagated by the Israeli government, uh, the arming of settlers, uh, I mean, the, the actually giving of arms uh, by the Israeli government to settlers as well, uh, is similarly terrifying. And we're seeing the culmination of years of those practices coming to fruition. Um, I think for a long time, a lot of people felt maybe a younger generation of Israelis might change uh, the political culture in Israel. But uh, it, it, this is uh, this is alarming insofar as it seems like uh, it's going to be hard to deprogram the thinking of people who've gone through IDF training, who have done service, who have uh, uh, been been taught uh, from that uh, uh, vantage point uh, to unlearn those things and, and to see the humanity uh, in Arab uh, neighbors um, who are also, as we said earlier, ghettoized and in separate neighborhoods, uh, uh, very much segregated. Uh, uh, that that can only uh, lead to, to further, I think, dehumanization uh, of Arabs in Israel and Palestinians uh, everywhere. And I think, um, you know, to bring it back to the, the media uh, in the West too, I think we're we've allowed a, a lot of that to, to happen uh, as well by by making uh, the actions and words of Israeli politicians sort of uh, untouchable and, and and putting them out as fact without challenge for so long as well. I think what people should leave this episode with is knowing that in Canada, we shouldn't continue to have this chilling effect or be scared to name things, to name what's going on and to support boycott, divestment and sanctions in a clear and full way and not just uh, post a picture on a story that disappears in 24 hours because it's sure the momentum we've seen in the last few days is very interesting and there's going to be events happening throughout this week we're going to see multiple events in toronto vancouver montreal and kitchener waterloo on the 15th but this this isn't going to be solved in a week so i'm wondering before we wrap up if uh, people can can maybe uh share any ending comments or, or talk about what what we need to be doing after this week because this isn't going to stop in a week I'm always inspired by the, the people in Palestine and the absolute, I don't think I will ever be worthy, you know, to, to be called, you know, brave or courageous after seeing what they endure and how they um, show incredible patience, um, bravery, and um, just hope. And I'm just always just in awe of that. And at the same time, they're calling for us, you know, who live with privilege and comfort to give them support, to speak their story and to speak up and to affect change and to stop our governments from the complicity of the status quo of, of apartheid. I would say, you know, just remember that they're, they're risking their very lives almost every single day. And, uh, you know, it might, you know, you might get some pushback if ever you speak about Palestine or if ever you, you start organizing in your community, but it's absolutely nothing compared to what they endure every day. And I think it's all our responsibilities to fight for justice um, for everyone with no exceptions. I think for, for me, what's um, 
important, I think, important to, to keep in mind. It, it's easy, you know, one of the, the most frustrating responses I get from uh, always the well-meaning liberal uh, is it's too complicated. I don't, you know, it, it's a historically entrenched. Um, I, I don't know enough to have an opinion. I think all of that is is uh, a farce. It's, it's a fallacy that that it is, a, and frankly, a complicated issue. I think it's actually quite straightforward. But I think we're told that because it breaks our morale, it breaks our spirit to learn more and to build bonds of solidarity. Um, it's a tactic that's used to divide us. So it is, I think that's something I want to leave people with, to do the work of, uh, if they need to be educated, to get educated, but but really just start anywhere. Uh, when we say Canada is complicit, uh, certainly it's the state, but it's also us as as, as voters, as as citizens, as uh, residents, whatever we may be, whatever relationship here in this uh, colonized uh, place that we, uh, you know, some of us are settlers are, some of us are not settlers, but we all have a role, um, I think, to play in making um, uh, in Canada's complicity, whatever whatever that. Uh, to whatever degree um and i think we all have an obligation to to say uh and do more and i think we just really need to um start somewhere start anywhere um i just also would let people know too that we do still have our website active we are still tracking emails if people want to get in touch with us it's palestine resolution 2021 because i do think we want to keep building on the list of, of awesome activists that we have um who are passionate about this issue we're coming from that leftist bent but even if you're you're new to this issue would really um, be bit more than happy to keep in touch and, and we're going to um, you know try to, to keep the work going. I guess sorry I just want to end off on a, one small thing and, and just to go back a bit and because this was a story that Omar actually said after we we, we passed the Palestine resolution it, it was a very heartwarming story and he, he, he was Omar and I'm putting taking his words and, and using them but saying that he he, he he did a story. He he, he interviewed one of uh, a, a Jewish anti-Zionist who was involved in uh, Palestine solidarity work for a long time. And you know, and a lot of us uh, face a lot of ostracization from our community, and in many cases, our own families. And sometimes never speak to that family member ever again. But uh, that person said said to Omar, "My grandparents died thinking I was a terrible person because of my activism." That hurt a lot, but it's nothing compared to what Palestinians have been through. And I think that just, again, like to anyone watching or not watching rather, but listening to this podcast, who's, who's, a, who's, who's Jewish and who's thinking of, or are, are on the fence about this issue, we should, you know, should think about that and, and what that means. And, and it's a difficult position to take, but, but it, you know, it, it's worth it, but. Yeah, thank you um, for for having us, and it's been um, yeah good to good to talk about it. Good to talk about it, um, you know, verbally and not just on social media, which was making me quite anxiety ridden uh, all week. So it's really nice to to connect and to have the to have the space. So I really appreciate making the, the space for the conversation. Um, folks can uh, find me at Amy Kashak uh, on social media, and um, as I said, you can get in touch with us at Palestine Resolution Twenty Twenty One. Yeah, thank you so much um, for this. Uh, again, yeah, my my name is Genevieve, um, and to encourage people to follow uh, the the work that of the uh, Palestinian activists behind the the Palestine Resolution, and and our website is live. Um, my own social media is Genevieve Joel. Thanks for having us, and if folks want to follow me, I guess uh, I'm uh, at Sam Hirsch zero one on on Twitter. Thanks again for, for having us here for this uh, conversation. All right, this is the part where we're signing off. So I'm going to sign off as well and say uh, thanks. Uh, my name's Omar. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, uh, what is my Twitter handle anyways? That's O-H-M-S-B, uh, Omsby uh, on, uh, yeah, on Twitter. So uh, 
Thanks for listening. Okay. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us. There's so much happening right now and it's really nice to take a moment and just like talk out the issues and hope that people can learn from some learn something from this. I know I did. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Hibipti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. You can find us on Twitter at HabibdiBlees with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha.